God, we believe that the fuel for the Christian life is seeing Jesus, seeing him exalted, seeing him reigning on the throne. And God, we confess that far too often we have a cloudy vision of Jesus due to our sin. We have a a tainted view of him. And so God, I pray as we study this passage this morning, as we think about the new heavens and the new earth, that you would supernaturally give us a glimpse of who Jesus truly is. God, help us to experience him. Help us to, to view him rightly. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The holidays around the corner. Uh, many of us will have the opportunity to uh, go back home and to celebrate the holidays with friends and with extended family. There's something really, really exciting about going back to the home that you grew up in because home is more than just a location. Uh, home is a place that is filled with really important memories and experiences and relationships that have shaped who we are. Uh, home is a very important category for us as human beings. I think it's why the experience of, of homesickness can be so difficult and so painful I'm sure you've had that experience before. Maybe it's been a few years for most of us, or you've seen your child or a grandchild kind of become homesick before. It's when you're away from home, you're away from what's familiar, away from what's known, away from what's secure, and there's this longing, there's this ache to get back home, to get back to how things should be. I remember in elementary school for me, I remember having my first sleepover uh, without any of my parents, without my siblings, just me over at a friend's house, my best friend's house named Michael Cranach. And I was so excited. Uh, You know, we talked about, you know, how awesome this was going to be. You know, I was going to, you know, spend the night the whole night. We're going to do A, B, and C. and, and, And we got late into the night and I just didn't make it. I didn't last. We had to call my mom and she had to come pick me up late into the night very embarrassing, but I just missed home. I I missed my parents. I missed uh, the smell of my house. I missed my pillow. I missed um, my OE, which was my security blanket that I slept with for far too long. I I missed some of those comforts of being home. See, we get homesick because there are things that we love. That homesickness is really the byproduct of the strength of our attachment. That if we didn't become attached to things, if we didn't love things, we wouldn't miss them when we are away. Part of the purpose of this sermon series is that that would be true for you, but in a new way as it relates to heaven. This morning, as we bring our sermon series on eschatology to a close, we're going to be talking about our forever home the new heavens, and the new earth. And my prayer for us is very simple, that you and I would have a new attachment in our hearts as it relates to heaven, that we would have a a new and and a deeper ache for the things that are yet to come, that we would have new longings and deeper desires and a renewed hope, that there be a large part of us that's homesick, to be with Jesus in heaven. Revelation chapter 21 is a beautiful passage. This is truly a sanctuary for the heart of every lonely pilgrim who is longing for home. 
I'm sure you've had an experience or a moment where you get a glimpse of what the new heavens and new earth might be like. We get those glimpses, I think, you know, frequently here on the earth just out of God's goodness. Perhaps you get a, a glimpse of what it's like to live in, in harmony, what it's like to have joy and gladness, maybe a moment where just a little bit, the, the effects of sin or brokenness aren't right before you. That perhaps for you, it might've been a, an experience with your spouse where you're talking with them on the back porch as the sun starts to set. Or maybe it, it's a moment where you've played with your kids, just a joy-filled moment with them where everything just seems right. Or maybe you've been with friends and you're laughing and having a great time and, and it just feels so good. And you get kind of a glimpse, a glimmer of what it might be like in the new heavens and the new earth. I think God gives us those moments as a foretaste of what is to come, yet way, way better. It's those moments where we say within our own hearts, this is how it should be. And yet this passage this morning, I think is going to teach us to say that in those moments when we have them here on the earth, that we will begin to say, this is how it will be forever, yet way, way better. I wanna begin this morning by asking you the question, when you think about the subject of heaven, what comes into your mind? When you think about what forever is going to be like, what do you think about? What will that experience be like? I think for some of us, we tend to think that we're going to be these disembodied spirits that are just kind of floating around, maybe enjoying eternal bliss on a far off shore. Maybe others of us, we, we tend to think we're going to be walking up and down those golden streets in heaven, maybe playing a harp on some type of cloud floating around. Maybe others of us think it's going to be just a never-ending church service, right? Where that last song just never ends. You think we do repetition now, just wait. Or maybe you think that heaven is really just one large family reunion, seeing old friends, seeing loved ones who have passed away, and that's the, what makes heaven so good. See, I think unfortunately we tend to we tend to have thoughts about heaven that are not as biblically informed as we care to admit. Like they comfort us, they make us feel good, but they're not always grounded in the Bible. I think part of the reason for that is because we tend to sidestep passages that talk about heaven, talk about the new heavens and the new earth because they're too complex for us. We like some of the passages, but we're like, oh, we don't really know what that means. And so we kind of move on. But I think another reason why we fail to rightly understand the new heavens and new earth is because we lose sight of the overarching story of God's redemptive plan. We're, we're unsure of where do the new heavens and new earth fit in, in God's plan of saving humanity. And so before we dive into this passage, I just wanna briefly zoom out for a moment because I think this is really important and I want to just briefly highlight some significant moments in God's redemptive plan. Okay, just briefly here, starting in the very beginning, we have the Garden of Eden. God dwells with his people in a perfect place, in a perfect relationship. All right, that's the very beginning. Then the fall happens. God's people are removed from God's perfect place in the Garden of Eden because they violated God's rule. 
then you've got Israel, all right? Now, fast forward a little bit there. I told you it's going to be brief. God's people are looking for, and then they eventually settle into God's promised land while meeting with God in tabernacle or in temple, living under the law. And then Jesus, right? God's son comes to die so that sinful people could become God's people and be restored back to God's place to live under God's rule, all right? Next, the, the next significant moment is the new heavens and the new earth, all right? This is where it fits. Revelation 21 and 22 describes the final chapter in God's redemptive story, and this is the climax. In the new heavens and the new earth, this refers to the state of the new creation after Jesus returns and after the final judgment. So the new heavens and the new earth, this is the, the culmination of the biblical story. This is Jesus accomplishing God's original purposes for creation, finally reversing the curse of Adam, culminating the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And ultimately, this is Jesus providing for his people a place to dwell with God for eternity. All right, so thinking about the new heavens and the earth, this is where God's place, God's people, and God's rule come together in one reality, in one existence that is perfect, that is glorious, and is eternal. The new heavens and the new earth are what it means for God's people to finally be home. As Paul Tripp says, that the Bible is a story with a beginning and an end that never truly ends. So in light of that, let me just point out three realities about the new heavens and the new earth this morning that I think are really important as we bring this series to a close. Here's the first one that I think is really important, is that what we see in the new heavens and new earth in this passage is God's fully renewed place. You notice in these first three verses, there are a lot of places, a lot of locations that are mentioned. You've got the new heavens, the new earth, the first earth, the first heaven. You've got the sea. You've got this holy city. You have the new Jerusalem, right? So the question is, is how do all of these places relate to one another, right? Maybe more specifically, verse one, what's the relationship between the new heavens and the new earth and the first heaven and the first earth? Right? John says here, if you look in verses 1 and 2, he says here that he's able to see the new heaven and the new earth for or, or because the first heaven and the first, first earth has passed away and the sea is no more. So what does it mean that the first earth and the first heaven will pass away? All right, there are two main beliefs here, two main camps the first one believes that the current earth, the current heavens will be utterly destroyed, be completely annihilated, all right? They, they get that from 2 Peter chapter 3, which says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? 
But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, so within this view, they translate this text as the earth being burned up. And while I think this translation can be supported, this interpretation tends to project a a fiery judgment upon the earth that leads to complete annihilation, complete destruction, rather than purification and healing. See, my particular view is that as Peter looks out into the future here in this passage, he does not see complete discontinuity with the past, but rather, I think uh, Peter's point here is that the present earth, the present heavens, will be purified from the ravaging effects of sin. That's, that's how fire typically is used in the New Testament related to the end times. Fire has a, a purifying effect. It has that effect on metals, on gold and silver. So I think that God's original creation will be purified in the way that Peter is using this word fire. We, we saw this even in 1 Corinthians 3 last week with, with Paul, when he talks about the judgments He uses fire there through the lens of purification rather than annihilation. And so instead of a brand new creation that follows the destruction of the the current creation, I think the new creation, the, the new heavens, the new earth will be a renewed and vastly transformed old creation. Okay, So I think we see also the, the continuity of this idea with our bodies. We looked at this a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 15. Our bodies will be our current bodies, just transformed, renewed. It'll be purified from the effects of sin. It will be better. Even in Romans 8, we see that creation is longing. They're groaning. They're wanting to be liberated, not to be annihilated, but to be liberated from the effects of sin. N.T. Wright describes it this way, that the the transition from the present world to the new one would be a matter not of destruction of the present space-time universe, but of its radical healing. Jesus's resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's prayer is all about. So, the new heavens, my particular view, new earth will be a renewal of the first heaven, the first earth fully purified from the effects of sin. And once that happens, verse two can occur, that the holy city, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven with God. This is amazing. This this city here is the capital of God's reign It's what some people believe is the place that Jesus referred to in John 14 when he said, in my father's house are many rooms. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Now this glorious new city coming down symbolizes the joining of God's realm with the realm of humanity in God's new creation. This is important because heaven is not just some location out in space. It's not just floating out there, on, uh, out there in the clouds where we'll be disembodied. No, our future home is one in which heaven and earth are joined together where God fully dwells in the midst of his people and his creation. So we will not be disembodied. 
We will not be dislocated. We will not be homeless. We will be back to Eden, but a far better Eden. Now, the question is, I'm sure you're wondering is, well, what will this renewed place be like? What are some specifics of what we can maybe anticipate? Well, John here describes the new heavens and the new earth, and he's human language. You can just tell reading Revelation is failing him. He's having to use metaphors and figures of speech. He uses one here talking about this city as being so radiantly beautiful that he describes it as a bride, a beautiful bride adorned for her husband. Or verse 11, the city is described as having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. You read in Revelation 21 and 22, the, this new heavens, the new earth, this city here with a massive river of life and a tree of life. This is a glorious recapitulation of the Garden of Eden just far better. It's a place in which there'll be constant joy, constant gladness, as Isaiah 65 describes. It'll be a place in which righteousness dwells and inhabits the whole space and all of God's people, 2 Peter 3. No decay, no wear or tear, no aging, no brokenness, no sin, and no death. It will be like it is now, just far far better. It'll be like seeing those gorgeous sunrises that we see just far, far better. It'll be like seeing the beauty of leaves changing in the fall just better. It'll be like seeing the, the wonder of a large mountain just better. It'll be like seeing the, the beautiful colors of flowers changing in the springtime just better. See, all of the little joys that we get here on the earth, it, they're like the, an inkling, a, a whisper saying that more joy, better joy is coming. That the Grand Canyon, the Alps, Niagara Falls, the Amazon rainforest, all of those things are just a rough sketch of the new earth that we will one day most likely say, as someone else put it, that the best parts of the old world were sneak previews of this one, like little foretaste, like licking of the spoon from mama's beef stew an hour before supper. It will be a new reality, a new kind of existence in which all of the negative aspects of our current world will be removed. All of the discoloration from sin will be gone. In fact, in verse 1, when it says that the sea will be no more, that's important because the sea in the Old Testament represented chaos and evil. John is saying those things will be no more. It's a place where God's purposes for his image bearers will be fully lived out without any barriers. It will be like the new Eden where suffering is finally and forever eclipsed by joy where all hurts are healed and where wholeness and peace abound. One commentary described it this way, said in our glorified bodies, we will enjoy a restored and renewed Eden, a place of pristine beauty and unbroken fellowship. 
the new heaven and earth will provide an environment conducive to the most precious values we now know, just and loving relationships, fellowship, beauty, and significant activity. Now, if we could get a little bit more specific this morning, what I find so fascinating in Revelation 21 and 22 is that the place where God and his people will live together is called a city 15 different times. It's interesting, when you read Revelation, these final couple of chapters here, it contains detailed architecture of gates and walls and streets and and other features that I think suggests that city here isn't just a figure of speech, but perhaps, and dare I say most likely, is a literal description of what we will experience, right? Now, thinking about a city for a moment, what we know to be true about cities, and even what was true for John when he wrote this, cities included citizens and bustling activity and cultural events, gatherings that include the arts and music and athletics, includes education and learning. It has streets and buildings and homes. I think it'd be very misleading for scripture to repeatedly, I mean, 15 different times, repeatedly describe our future home as a city if at least some of these things were not included. So I think the new Jerusalem here, this city will have all of the positives of a city without the negatives, right? So no crime, no pollution, no sirens, no garbage, no homelessness, no feeling lost or overwhelmed in a city. It will be a city with, with natural wonders and magnificent architecture and thriving culture. I think that this will be a place that will finally fulfill Isaiah's prophecy where it says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in which I create for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So God's fully renewed place. Secondly, I think another aspect that the new heavens, the new earth will include will be God's fully restored people. God's fully restored people. In verse three, it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the fulfillment of God's plan for the ages, God and mankind together again in peace, in harmony, fully restored in intimate fellowship that what was lost in the garden is renewed, but in a greater and deeper way. That God will dwell with us. God will be known. No more knowing God partially. No more knowing him or seeing him or understanding him through sin-tainted, foggy eyes. God will be known and we will experience the fullness of God's presence. Thinking about God's presence in heaven will be so tangible, it'll be like the air that we breathe. Revelation 21, 22 says there's no temple, there's no sun, there's no moon. God's glory will be our light. And this is possible because 
God's people will be fully restored. That's why we're allowed to experience that. That's why we will be able to experience that, which is another good reminder that salvation is more than just the forgiveness of our sins. It's more than just our justification. That salvation is fully complete when we are glorified, when we experience this in the new heavens and the new earth, when our whole being, our body and our soul reflects the glory and the image of Jesus Christ. And glorification, this is the the completion, the consummation, the perfection, the full realization of being saved. And glorification is a vital aspect of the new heavens and the new earth. What this means is that God's Uh, God will fully reverse the curse of sin once and for all. You look at verse four here, it speaks into this reality with incredible hope. It says, he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Just take a moment and try to imagine that. Try to imagine the reality of verse four. Like, take it in for a moment. Like, part of what will be so wonderful in heaven is what won't be there. What's here now that won't be there forever. I mean, this is, this is incredible. No more death? Imagine that. Imagine how many, how many times we think about death brush shoulders with death, impacted by death, gone. No more crying, no more mourning, no more sense of loss, no more sense of regrets, no pain. Disabilities and disease, gone. Divorce and depression, over. Loss and loneliness are things of the past that God will permanently remove all pain, sorrow, and suffering. And this tells us something about God, doesn't it? Like the wonder and the beauty of this God in this passage is a God who comforts. Look again at verse four. Think about every burden you've carried, every tear you've shed, every fear that's gripped you, every worry about the future that you've suffered under. And verse four tells us it's God who will comfort you, God who wipes away all of our tears. This picture of God is amazing. It also, I think, fulfills Isaiah 25. He, referring to God, will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Now, you might be wondering as well, give me more specifics. And I know when we get a little bit more specific about the new heavens and new earth, we're kind of on thin ice a little bit. But I want to maybe lightly address the question, what will we be doing as God's restored people? Now, again, I don't think we have a lot of specifics in the Bible. I do think that we have some general principles that can lead us to safe conclusions, That what we see throughout, in particular, the New Testament, but even the Old Testament, we're told of banquets and feasts and laughing and rejoicing and 
productive work and exercising authority and having assigned roles and, and different, different assignments that we'll be living out, having satisfied work that I think will continue to image God, but without the effects of sin and brokenness. That's probably a good summary. So we'll be living lives of creativity. We'll be loving, we'll be building, we'll be inhabiting. So I, I would go as far as to say, we'll be doing anything that images God without the effects of sin. And there's a lot that you can put under that umbrella, like baking and playing games, playing sports, woodworking, engineering, organizing, architecture, music, painting, storytelling, creating thriving culture. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Like whatever, whatever you're thinking about, it will be better, far better, that God will fully restore us in a way where we can be fully human, the way God intended us to be, that results in perfect flourishment. Now, I know we want more specifics, but that's all we got. And verse five, I think is significant as well. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. Notice that's different than saying I'm making all new things. I'm making all things new, meaning you'll be you just transformed. You'll be you just restored. You'll be you, but just fitted for eternity. Jonathan Edwards describes it this way. He says that the saints are like so many vessels of different sizes cast into the sea, referring to heaven, of happiness where every vessel is full. This is eternal life for a man ever to have this, ever to have his capacity filled. But after all, it is left to God's sovereign pleasure. Tis his prerogative to determine the largeness of the vessel. Meaning we're gonna be filled with joy, but some will have different capacities of experiencing joy as we talked about last week. But nonetheless, you'll be filled with happiness and joy to the brim and there will be no coveting what other people have. Amazing. A lot more I think we could say about that, but let me go to the third point here. The third one, I think the most important is that God in the new heavens and the earth, we see that God's fully reclaimed prominence. God's fully reclaimed prominence. What I find so fascinating when I study the Bible, look at the scriptures, not once do you see the phrase referring to after death, do you see the phrase go to heaven? It's fascinating that not once, Old New Testament, does it talk about our experience after death as going to heaven? Now, that doesn't mean the Bible doesn't have anything to say about what happens after we die. Of course, we've been looking at that the last several weeks. But what's so interesting is that in talking about and describing our eternal state, the Bible does not choose to emphasize going to heaven. Let me show you a couple of passages of scripture that talk about what happens after we die and see if you see any themes that emerge. Let me give you just a few here. This is the thief on the cross in Jesus, the first one in Luke 23. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, 
Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's another one. This is Paul, Philippians 1. He is chained in a Philippian prison. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Second Corinthians 5, we saw this passage last week. It says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. You notice any themes here? There are, there are lots more here. There's just three. The consistent theme here of thinking about our eternal state is not going to heaven. The theme here and our hope is that we will be with Jesus. That's the theme and that's the emphasis here. You, you read the gospels, you read the apostle Paul, there is such an emphasis that nothing will separate you from being with God. Nothing can separate us from his love, not even death. And when you read Revelation 21, specifically verses six and seven here, but all, the whole chapter, even chapter 22, there is such an emphasis here on being with God, it's, it's hard not to notice it. Like even six and seven here, God is the alpha and the omega. God is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. That God is the one who is giving eternal water to the thirsty. That God is the one who's declaring, I am your God, you are my people. You belong to me. You look at these chapters, the whole emphasis on the new heavens and the new earth is God himself. He's the focus. He's the priority. He's the center. He's the all-consuming hub for all of eternity. And the new heavens and new earth is finally, finally, God fully reclaiming his prominence in a way that his people actually recognize it. So look, we can get excited and interested about the new heavens and new earth, about what's it gonna look like? What are we going to be doing? What will our bodies be like? That's fine. But you have missed the purpose of this sermon series if you fail to understand that your eternal existence is centered on God himself forever. And look, church, I, I love the gospel. You know I love the gospel. You know I love preaching about the gospel. That the gospel is our rock solid assurance of the hope that we have in the new heavens and new earth. The gospel is what enables us to have these resurrected bodies, these transformed bodies, these glorified bodies, right? Like because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, he died in the place of sinners. He died for me, he died for you so that you can be forgiven, so that you can have his righteousness that clothes you. He died for you and raised to life so that you can be accepted before God. And look, church, all of that is true. It's just not the ultimate goal of the gospel. It's not the main point of the gospel. That the ultimate goal of the gospel is not that you get into the new heavens and the new earth. The ultimate goal of the gospel is not 
that you get these transformed, glorified bodies. The goal of the gospel is not ultimately that you're in a place without the effects of sin forevermore. The ultimate goal of the gospel is not even that you have forgiveness from your sins. All of those things are amazing and true because of the gospel, but they are just means to an even greater end. They are not ultimately what the gospel will lead you to. The ultimate goal of the gospel, and John Piper puts it so much better than I can, the ultimate goal of the gospel is not to get people to heaven. The ultimate goal of the gospel is to get people to God. That the reason why we emphasize Jesus, the reason why we hold up the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reason we're in the sermon series is to remind God's people that in the end, you get God. You get God himself in all of his splendor, in all of his majesty, in all of his glory. That's the ultimate goal of the gospel. And the reality is, is that for some of us, we're wondering do I really want that? That perhaps some of us are wondering, yeah, that's good, but get back to describing the new heavens for a moment. So we need to be reminded of 1 Peter 3. It says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that, or so that, he might bring us to God. Look, there's no end after that. Everything before that is a means. And, and I am concerned that there is so much of an emphasis on justification and forgiveness of sins, but just stopping there, that it leads people to conclude that, oh, the gospel? Oh, that, that removes my guilt. That saves me from heaven. And now it just allows me to enjoy the comfort and ease of heaven where there's amazing food and golf and TV and my friends forever, but you don't desire Jesus. Like that's my big concern here because you're falling in love with the gifts instead of the giver. And that's not what Revelation 21 and 22 are emphasizing here. It's emphasizing the fact that the ultimate goal of all of this is that you get God. And please don't misunderstand me. Justification and forgiveness is significant. It's what allows you to get in to experience God. It's just a means to a greater end. John Piper puts it this way. He says that the critical uh, question for our generation, for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth, all the food you've ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? The question that you have to answer this morning is do you want the new heavens and the new earth more than you want Jesus. 
Which one excites you more? Everything that we've talked about this morning about the new heavens and earth or being with God himself. This morning, do you have such a strong attachment to Jesus that there is truly a big part of you that is homesick because you just wanna be with Jesus finally home? Maybe to put it a different way, if you're not obsessed with Jesus right now, you're probably not going to like eternity. If you're a little bit bored with Jesus right now, if you don't really know him, you're probably not going to like the new heavens and the new earth. And so look, this sermon series, the purpose here as we come to a close is to remind us that what makes the new heavens and the new earth so great is that King Jesus will finally, finally be our absolute obsession. Finally, finally, the full priority of our lives to such a degree that when we're there, our hearts will say, I'm home. I'm home. This is what I was created for. My whole being to be consumed by Jesus. I'm home. It's all about Jesus. All of this brings us to a place where we get to see him and experience him the way that we were created to experience him forever. Let me close with the end of Revelation. It says, Behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, that is our heart's desire that you would come, that you would come quickly, that you would no longer tarry. We just want to be with you We want to be not only removed from sin and from brokenness and from death and from conflict. Yes, that's what we want. But Jesus, more than anything, we just want to be with you. We want to know you the way that we ought, not partially. We don't just want to see you through the lens of our sin-tainted eyes, but we want to see you the way that we were created to see you. So God, I pray as we think about how our belief in the future impacts our now, God, would you stir up longings and desires for you and you alone? Would you be our obsession? Would your prominence be true in our lives where you are the number one priority? You are reigning on the throne of our hearts forever. We love you. We thank you that you have made a way for us to experience that. We give you all glory and all praise. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.